Hey, listeners, this is Steve with a quick programming note before the episode. We recorded this episode before the horrific attacks on Israel and the devastating response by Israel in the Gaza Strip. So although we talk about the IDF and its role on technology and society, you will not hear any mention of what happened in the past two weeks or so. Please enjoy the show. Hey, it's the FinTech Newscast. My name's John. And with me, as always, is Steve. How are you doing? Uh, prepping for Halloween. How are you, John? Good, good. You have your Trump mask ready? You uh, scare no. some kids? <laughs> That's a little bit too scary. Come on, I, I'm a yeah. I'm a family guy. I'm a family guy. Yeah. Do you think anybody else has a chance? They have these uh, Republican debates, and they're just kind of squabbling. They they look kind of petty next to uh, next to Trump. I I don't think they have much of a shot. It doesn't look like to me. So I'm not much of a political prognosticator, but I can tell you that I think they're all vying for a VP role. They're just aiming to get that. I don't think anybody has any, any real chance of actually becoming the nominee yeah. for, for, for the GOP. Yeah, oh, there, there you go, Steve. Always looking behind the curtain. That's why you're you're such a good interviewer. That's 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 one reason. All right. Well, uh, if we have a great interviewer like you, we need a great guest. So this week, we definitely have one. We're lucky to have Alon Arvats the CEO and founder of Point5, and the author of the book, The Battle for Your Computer, Israel and the Growth of the Global Cybersecurity Industry. Welcome to the show. Hey, John, Steve, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, thanks Thanks for joining us. You know, great naming on both the company, Point5, very catchy, and and the book, The Battle for Your Computer. It, it makes me want to, to check it out. Uh, and, and finish reading it for sure. You know, I, I'm curious about about the book. What what are the biggest global cybersecurity issues? I mean, we see things in the news, but from your point of view, what what do you see? Yeah, so I guess the big things here in the news are basically the things that are top of mind for all you know cybersecurity professionals across the globe. Uh, for two reasons, you know, one, the big things have the biggest impact on the organization, so this is what they're concerned about. And another important thing is that when something appears in the news, then your board member who doesn't know anything about cybersecurity, he picks up the phone, calls the CEO and asks him, hey, how do we protect ourselves against what we see in the news? So, you know, very often- the Do we use Microsoft is... email? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, very often the things that you hear in the news are actually the things that are top of mind for security professionals. Um, and I guess today I would um, point out two things. One is ransomware. This is probably uh, uh, the most, uh, I would say, important um, attack vector today, uh, the one that is the most common. So organizations of all sorts and kinds are really concerned about this type of threats. It's being leveraged by cyber criminals across the globe all the time. So that's one from the attacker's perspective. The other one is from the organization's perspective. So organizations are now transitioning to the cloud. So more and more applications, data um, um, are now being transitioned to the cloud and that makes the cloud environment a place where very sensitive and expensive stuff are being hosted. So protecting cloud environments is something that's really, really big almost for any organization today. 
Yeah, and you're certainly uh, jumping into the space. The, the book uh, just came out in September, and the company, 0.5 at 0.5.co, uh, is just uh, releasing and, and ramping up uh, and uh, specializing in the cloud space, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I love to, to keep myself busy. <laughs> it looks like I, yeah yeah so i released the book uh, in hebrew by the way in january and a week later we raised our seed round for 0.5 and we're in the cloud cost uh, optimization space and a couple of weeks ago the book was released in english uh mainly to the american market so that's it we're pretty excited so i'm launching a book while running a startup um it's pretty intense but I like it that way. Otherwise, it's boring. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you thought, oh, maybe the Americans might be inter interested in cybersecurity too? So I think everyone has to be interested in cybersecurity. This is a threat to everyone today. Everyone has a smartphone. Everyone has a computer. You know, our data is being hosted in all these places. Our most, you know, sensitive communications and conversations are there. So you have to be worried about cybersecurity and you have to be aware about cybersecurity. So I think this book is relevant for anyone, anyone, any human being, let's put it this way. Um, and actually I can tell you, or I can share that I had a dilemma before I started writing the book. Am I writing a book for the general public or for security professionals? It wasn't clear. Actually, some people told me, hey, do it for cyber professionals. They care about cybersecurity. Um, it's a focused group. You will hit what they're looking for very easily. But for me, it was actually very important to appeal also to the general public because I felt that one, everyone needs to understand at least the fundamentals of cyber attacks and cybersecurity. That's one. And two, I think that cyber is not a story of computers, at least not only a story of computers. But it's also a story about people. There are people behind the attacks. There are people behind the companies. There are people that protect their organizations. And it's really about the people that having this cat and mouse fight and the warfare behind the scenes. And this is what I try to bring to the front of uh, the stage and share with the whole world. Do you differentiate between an online scam and a cyber attack? So um, are those two two different ways of looking at the same problem or are they different different threat vectors, you think? So I think there are different threat vectors. So online scam is one kind of cyber attack. So basically any attack that involves uh, computers or any type of, of uh, like com compute units, like smartphones, like IoT devices. So if your car, for example, is connected to the internet, so it's kind of a computer as well. So every, every attack that's related to one of these things, I would consider as a cyber attack. And this is where we're all exposed to that. You know, even if you have a car and it's connected to the internet, it's basically a computer in your car and is now exposed to cyber threats. I saw a, a really fascinating uh, metric from a few weeks ago that a survey that Deloitte conducted here in the U.S., according to the SALT survey results, and this makes no sense if you sort of think about it from a 
um, from a usage perspective, but apparently Gen Z users are three times more likely to fall prey to an, to a, a scam online than boomers. So they're actually, uh, again, more likely to, to fall prey to this. Um, and it sort of, it, it goes counter against the this idea that, that we have that, oh, it's just all people all people get, get, get getting scammed by all these, uh, you know, by the people who, who, who call from, from India or something, or who just who, who get into their email. Um, but, but I'm wondering from a, from a consumer perspective in terms of how you, uh, can protect yourself against either cyber attacks or, 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 um, scams, um, what's sort of the most valuable thing that you can do to, 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 to make sure that you are covered or, or, or maybe what, what, what's the thing that you should not do as well? Right. So I think that the most important thing is to understand how a cyber attack works. Okay, how it's implemented, how it's executed. If you would understand that, you will have the awareness that you need in order to protect yourself. You wouldn't press links for no good reason. You wouldn't download files that are suspicious because if you understand how it works and you understand the mechanisms and the methods of the attackers, that puts you in an amazing position. I can tell you that the weakest link when it's come to cyber attacks um, is the, uh, the the people, right? The people that you know unknowingly press something or click something or give away information for no good reason. Actually, the ransomware attack a couple of weeks ago against the MGM and Caesars uh, happened because uh, they called a person. They told him, "Hey, uh, we need your help. Please click here." And this is how the ransomware was installed on his computer and then expanded to the entire entire company. So it's like this one person who didn't realize there is something suspicious, who didn't realize that by clicking on something that can install ransomware on his computer. And this is why he, he wasn't afraid doing that. And you talked about boomers versus Gen Z. So boomers, you know, uh, they're a lot more, I don't know, reluctant or, or I don't know, suspicious about technology and sharing the data online. If you would talk to my mother-in-law, and you will tell, I will tell that I shared on Facebook a picture, you know, from a trip I've done. She would, she will be all freaked out. Okay, how come you, you publish mm -hmm. your personal stuff online? For Gen Z who are used to share everything they do online and share data with the entire public, it's a lot easier to get them to do stuff online and to get them to give away their, their data. And this is why they're a lot more exposed to cyber attacks. You may not know this, but um. The, the company where I work, they, they do all these campaigns where they basically send out fake phishing emails, right? So that you can maintain the, that, that awareness, you know, don't click on links and all that. Um, but I'm curious about, you know, wh whoever does click on that link or wh whoever is, you know, phished or scammed, and scammed into installing some nefarious software on their work network, whether there's an age correlation as well, whether it's boomers or Gen Zs, who knows? Um, do, do you have any information into sort of how those two groups um their likelihood of clicking on that bad link so honestly i don't have like um actual data and facts uh, about that and um, but i i would assume that like you know uh like i said younger people will more likely uh click these links because they're used to clicking all the time and getting to websites and move from one place you know to another uh, so for them, it's a lot more critical to understand what they should be aware of. And if you ask me, we should have cybersecurity education from a very early age. 
Okay, people in elementary school should learn about computers and should learn about cyberspace and cyber attacks. So when they will get to that point that, I don't know, they have a smartphone, they have a computer, and they have sensitive data that is being uploaded to these devices, they will also know how to protect them. Yeah, it's a little Got bit it. intimidating when I see like a, like a Microsoft's uh, system has been hacked or the Pentagon or something like this. Like if, if they can get hacked, uh, what are the chances? <laughs> What's the hope for the rest of us? No one is yeah. safe. The, the, yeah. the only hope is um, I don't have any money in my account and nobody would <laughs> waste their time hacking me, I guess. I know it's a valid point, by the way. So when the Pentagon gets hacked, that is a result of months, sometimes years of someone trying to hack and someone with top-notch capabilities and technologies. No one would invest this amount of effort in hacking you, John. In hacking Thank you, you John. I'm, I feel much better, kind of. Yeah, it, it may sound funny, but that's a very good reason for you to believe that you're more protected. So when you see <laughs> the Pentagon get, get tagged, you know, this is a result of months, sometimes years of some attacker with top-notch capabilities and technologies trying to hack the Pentagon until it succeeded. You only see the end of that, but there is an entire process until they got to this point. Uh, no one is going to invest so much effort and resources. As much as I love you, John, and I think you know, you're an amazing guy and probably you have amazing content on your computer and phone, I don't think that someone would invest so much resources in hacking into your smartphone or computer to get your data. I feel kind of better, I guess. <laughs> That's something. Better, yeah. You should, you should, you should. Yeah. yeah so yeah. um, one, one question that is oftentimes overlooked in the whole cyberspace is that we really um, don't really spend a lot of time thinking about the sources of, of these attacks. Um, and I know that pre-Ukraine war, a lot of this stuff came from sort of Eastern Europe and Russia as well. Have you seen how the war in the Ukraine has affected cyber attacks or, or have they just simply moved to a different geography? So Ukraine definitely felt how the cyberspace is changed uh, because when Russia is in a war with Ukraine, um, they use the cyberspace as another you know, um, uh, like another area of warfare, okay? It's another, you know, space like air uh, and land and sea. Cyber is another war space. And Russia has complementary efforts to attack your Ukrainian computer, mainly critical infrastructure, like energy, electricity, water, this type of stuff, in order to disrupt the life of the Ukrainians. So they definitely felt it. I don't think, however, that we saw things going from Ukraine to other areas as well. So this is very focused on Ukraine. And I think that also Russia is being very careful with its cyber attacks because they don't want to start a global cyber warfare. So they're very focused on Ukraine and doesn't go much outside of that uh, territory. So how has it been now uh, starting this new company, Point Five? Uh, you just started it uh, uh, this year. You're you're saying that just getting that first funding. Um, what's the environment like these days uh, for for starting out? And you're based in the U.S. Uh, uh, and Israel as well. Point five is uh, is in the cloud cost management space, the FinOps space, not cybersecurity. Although I have like 
over 10 years of background in cybersecurity, my military service was in cybersecurity. I had two companies in cybersecurity. Uh, I wrote a book about cybersecurity, but actually it's pretty refreshing to get out of cybersecurity, work with other uh, people, um, doing something a bit different, learn a whole new space. So that's refreshing and honestly, a lot of fun. Um, from fundraising perspective, it's definitely not 2021, right? The market has changed. The terms you can get from uh, investors has changed tremendously. And, and I actually, a funny story, when we started fundraising and, and we went to investors, that's when I asked us how much you're going to raise. And I was like throwing away crazy numbers. How much uh, do you want to give that, me? Yeah. Uh, sorry? <laughs> how much can you give me? How much can you give me? And, uh, and they asked, can I give? Honestly, I'm, um, I don't want to share the number that I said because they're really crazy. But numbers that friends of mine raised on seed rounds like two years before, 2021, 2020. And now investors tell you, alone, you're completely off. <laughs> you're off market, okay? Get back to us with something that makes sense. And, and I did. Like I, I took step, a, a few steps back. I went to do my homework, do the market research. I understood what are the right numbers right now when you want to raise capital. And I went back to them with something that made sense. So the market has changed tremendously. Um, I will say that for a second timer, someone who's done successful startup in the past, it is a lot easier than first timer. So you get not as good terms as you could like a couple of years ago, but it's definitely still, you know, I wouldn't say easy, but uh, definitely, you know, you know, possible to, to raise uh, money right now especially when you're a second timer. So basically investors become a lot more conservative with, with the entrepreneurs they invest in. So second timers became, become hot commodity. So the investors, they fight a lot harder on second timers, which are um, like from the probab probability to succeed, they're a lot more likely to succeed. So from that perspective, I think it's, it's a bit easier to raise funds but it's harder to get good terms. What was the toughest question that they asked you this time? The toughest question? Like um, about the business, uh, not so much of the valuation. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I understand. Uh, I think the toughest uh, question was about uh, the market itself. So, and I hear that a lot, and I hear that all the time. Okay, FinOps is a crowded space. There are, I'd say, dozens of vendors, startups out there that do something related to FinOps. And everyone was like, why are you chasing a red ocean? Why are you chasing a space with so many players? And I had to bring a very, very good answer to that. So I had to do market an analysis. I had to realize that the FinOps space is now shifting. And today, instead of sending finance people to do FinOps, the management expects the engineer organization to take responsibility over cloud cost management because they're- Oh, the wait, wait, what, what, does, what does FinOps mean exactly? Yeah, so F F FinOps mean cloud cost management, like managing the costs 
of your cloud environment. It includes understanding what you spend your money on, what type of services on AWS, GCP, or Azure you're using, uh, what, what is it being used for, like what is the business use case for these costs, uh, budgeting, forecasting, um, and also make sure that you're efficient with the way you use the cloud. I heard lately a customer who told me that an engineer left a machine or, or more than one machine turned on accidentally and suddenly they realized they have um, additional hundreds of thousands of dollars of spend every month because of that stupid mistake. That, that so wasn't you, to, right? That was what? That wasn't you, right? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Thank God, no. I, I don't, wouldn't want to, you know, switch uh, places with this uh, engineer. Uh, yeah. But that's insane. You know, the slightest mistake can cause excessive costs and crazy costs. So you have to make sure you're efficient. You have to make sure you're on top of that. And all these vendors that I talk about, they help you with some aspects of what I just described. For laymen like Jen and I, can you explain what cloud, what cloud waste is and that could and how that could manifest um, on a business? Yeah, for sure. So the thing about the cloud is that you pay for what you use, right? So, so if you choose to use a certain compute unit or storage, you will pay for that. But you don't necessarily, or at least the cloud provider, they don't check that you use it efficiently. For example, mm -hmm. I can choose a certain machine uh, it's a very big machine, so I pay a lot. And for my use case, I can use a smaller machine that costs a lot less. So this is waste. Anything that you pay for, but you can pay less without affecting the performance of your application or without affecting uh, um, your business, right? So you, you pay for something, a, a big compute unit with uh, eight cores, and you only need something with core four, core, uh, four cores. You, you store data that you don't need. You pay for the storage, but you don't need the data. So for example, we can analyze if you use this data or not, tell you, hey, you store this data, you pay for the storage, but you don't use the data. So why don't you just delete it and don't pay your cloud service provider for no good reason? Also architecture, the way you build your um, a compute units and where you locate them across the, the globe, that can create excessive costs. And there are ways to put them, for example, cl close one to each other in order to save on the data transfer costs. So basically, waste is anything that you, know, you pay for, you pay the cloud provider for, but you don't really need it. Or you can get the same outcomes, the same results with paying a lot less. And we, as point five, our mission is to identify these areas and drive action across the organization to solve that and lower your cost. No, I didn't know this was a whole industry. That uh, you said there's a lot of competitors. Uh, so I, I guess um, every large organization, corporates, and uh, you also make me think of large research organizations that use a, a lot of data. Uh, th those are the primary customers. Yes, so we specifically, we focus on enterprises, so big organizations. Um, enterprise today spends at least tens of millions of dollars uh, on cloud a year. And think about like if they spend tens of millions, even if I find 10% waste, 10% inefficiencies, 
that's like millions of dollars every year that they spend for no good reason. So we focus on the big ones because they have a lot of waste. And also because it's a big organization, not everyone knows each other. Uh, you have engineers across the globe working on multiple applications and multiple products. So you need a way to orchestrate the entire process of identifying where you have the inefficiencies, but also find the relevant person and dr drive him to take action and take care of these issues. So for global companies, even if they identify waste, they now have an entire process of identifying who is responsible for that and, and, and try to convince them to do something about it. And this is where exactly we get into the game and help them drive this action and facilitate the entire process A to Z. So we've seen how uh, it seems like cloud providers like GCP and Azure and, and AWS have really increased their prices as well. Um, why, first of all, why do you think that's, that is the case? It, it seems like things, things seem to get cheaper as they, they mature in the market, which isn't the case for cloud services. Uh, and also could, could this be seen as a cost saving thing that, that the companies can use as well to, to lower their, their cloud costs? So first of all, I can tell you that the cloud providers are very concerned about the cost of their solutions. So it's also good for the revenues obviously, but organizations are, trying, are starting to ask very hard questions. Why should I invest in the cloud if it costs so much? Is it really that efficient? Is it really worth it? And there, there are like initial signs that some organizations are transitioning back from the cloud to on-premises. I, I can't say it's a trend. I can't say it's something that, that happens very often. But there are organizations that ask the hard questions and decide to transition back to on-premises or at least leave some of their, their on-premises workloads. So obviously the cloud providers are, are concerned about that. Um, uh, and this is why, for example, they like the fact that there are vendors like us that help the organization keep the cost under control. Um, now, regarding the cost, so I can tell that in the past, the prices were crazy. They have been moderated a bit, mainly because of the competition, like once Azure and GCP and now Oracle got into the game, that really um, weakened like the bargaining power of AWS, for example, and really moderated a bit uh, the prices. Um, I think the reason that you know, overall the prices are going up, it's mainly because of inflation, <laughs> basically. Um, um, but it's not like it's been in the past, like it was extremely expensive and just getting more expensive over time. You know, this time has definitely passed. So you just started this company. And like you said, you've had experience before. How has it been uh, growing the company? Are you able to hire who you need to get the resources? You mentioned funding. Uh, I guess my real question is, uh, what's the, the main constraints on, on getting up and running? Yeah, so actually from hiring perspective, it's gotten a lot better. So since the so this is actually the advantage of starting a company during an economic downturn, that there's a lot more talent in the market after all the layoffs that we've seen. Um there are a lot of there's a lot of good talent out there that's a lot easier to recruit. So it's still a challenge, like always. So finding like the real good and talented people. And uh, that's, that's always a challenge. 
Uh, but actually, it's a lot easier than it was like uh, two or three years ago. Okay, so that's a that's actually a nice feature of uh, doing it in this uh, period of time. Um, I think that uh, for us in specific, it's mainly about execution. So we did a very strong validation with customer to identify the problems that I shared with you, like you know identifying the inefficiencies, you know doing something about them, etc. And and for us, it's mainly about execution. So so building the product as fast as possible. I'm getting the design partners on board. Now we we already running POCs, so running the POC process end to end successfully and highlighting the advantages of uh, the product. You know, that's for me the main challenges. So execution, being efficient on our executions. And at this point, where we are is lending uh, the first cost to customers. So as a second time founder, Alan, I'm I'm curious, um, what is a key lesson that you learned the hard way in your first startup that you've taken to to this new one now? That's what I was going to ask. Oh, man. <laughs> well, there are so many. There are so many across the board. Product, people, strategy. Wow, everything. Um, but something that, you know, I want to uh, to highlight um, is that my whole approach to uh, managing people has changed. Okay? Uh, on in insights, at least in the beginning, uh, we brought a lot of, you know, uh, juniors with not much of experience. So maybe it was natural. No one knew us. Um, it was hard to get good people. So, uh, so so it was really, you know, getting not the best talent. And also it took us when something didn't work and, and I don't know, this person wasn't the one we needed. It took us, you know, months until we got to these conclusions and did something about it, right? And talked to this person and even more time to get the point where we say, okay, it's not working. We need to uh, to split, and and that that really you know delayed our execution, our ability to grow. I think Steve, today, we're gonna have to talk after this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So so today is very different uh, because first of all, my bar is a lot higher today so i'm not compromising on talent i learned it the hard way and now it's a lot different and two when something doesn't work i communicate it directly so the person that i work with he knows where he stands he knows where the expectations are from him and if you know there is a person who who won't stand up to, to the standards and what we need i will let him go a lot faster than i did at insights and that that is the important process that you know, make us um, or allows us to make sure that we always have the best people on board and everyone knows where he stands. Yeah. So I, I guess if we flip the question now, so you you actually become an angel an angel investor. Um, what what kind of companies are, are you uh, essentially making bets on, and what's really got you excited now? Yeah, actually, it's a very interesting op- topic because I start with uh, angel investing. And I was really disappointed from angel investing. So I thought, wow, it can be really cool now that I can invest in companies and I'll be a part of their journey. So when I started investing, I look for two things. Problems that excite me. So looking for startups that solving a problem that excites me. Excites me. And, and two, I actually preferred 
first-time founders with not much experience because I felt like I want to, you know, give away from my experience, give my advice, uh, share with them what, what I learned the hard way so it wouldn't be that hard for them as well. This is what I had in mind. But the reality is that an investor is not that involved in the day-to-day -day of the startup and not that involved in the uh, big decisions that are being made in the company. So after I invested, I was expecting to feel like I'm part of that and I'm helping them succeed and I'm exposing to new, um, I don't know, to, to new areas of expertise and I can really help them to become a lot more successful. But in reality, the founders are you know crunching everything that seems to be crunched on a daily basis and as investors you're pretty far from what's happening so i gotta be disappointed and i stopped you know it also took me some time to evaluate new spaces and the founders so it also took me a lot of time so when i became a founder myself it's time that i didn't ha have so i just decided to stop if it's not fun, stop doing it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that's a motto for life, you know. I, yeah. I, I'm like, if you're not, if you're not happy about it, don't do it. If you don't get, you know, if you don't get up in the morning and you're excited about what you do and you're energized, you know, go for something else. This is always how I I acted. Yeah, it seems Worse, like one of the yeah. the the main features of a an entrepreneur. Just that that uh, that passion for your mission to you know wanting to make a difference in wh whatever the space is, and uh, you're a great example of that. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yes, that's Alon Arvats, the CEO and co-founder of Point Five Co, and the author of the Battle for Your Computer. Israel and the growth of the global cybersecurity industry. Please hit subscribe and we'll see you next week.